0: Good morning. And yes, Christmas came early in the Schlicker household. I do have a helper here, so I apologize for any background noise. Marnie, would you like to say hi? (laughs) Today's scripture reading is from Ruth chapter four. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, come over friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kidsmen, kinsmen, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it. And I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on, my, on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, Acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elamlach and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children. Yes, may you produce children in Ephraim. Ritha, and bestow a name in Bethlehem, and through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Yes, yes. Then the, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Amidab, Amidab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. This is the word of the Lord. Marnie, say thanks be to God.
1: So uh, a question for all y'all. Has Jesus messed up your life yet? Now, I know that's probably not a question you're expecting to hear out of a pastor's mouth, but it's a legit question. It's an honest question. Has God come in and utterly upended your life yet? And I ask this not just because there's lots of stuff around us that's upending our lives, but in relationship to God, have there been ways that God's arrival in your life through Jesus has completely messed with things. Because we see that again and again in the Bible, right? Peter, the fisherman, perfectly content. They're doing well. They've got some hired servants, at least a couple boats. And then Jesus shows up. You can read the story in Luke 5, and it completely changes Peter's life. There's a guy named Saul who was an up-and-coming rabbinical student, the best of the best with the degrees, the mentors. He was doing really well. In American terms, he's clerking for a Supreme Court justice. He's got life made. And then God shows up and completely messes with his life when he's on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians. And he's known to history as Paul the Apostle. I ask this because those of us who've been following Jesus for a while can attest that it's not just in scripture. It's not just those people in the Bible. when Jesus comes into our lives, we find ourselves befriending people we would not normally be friends with. We join churches we would not normally have become part of. We move to places that we would not have moved. We take careers that we would not have taken. Jesus comes into our lives and we find ourselves giving ourselves to others around us in ways that we would never have done before Jesus comes in and disrupts everything for good. We see these ways that God disrupts our lives in all kinds of ways throughout the book of Ruth. And uh, go back and read the first three chapters, this week's chapter four. uh, You can listen to the sermons and engage in that way from previous weeks. But for this week, let's, let's focus on Boaz. His life has been profoundly changed by God and not just right now. If you do go back and read earlier chapters, you see the way that before he knows who Ruth is at all and her connection to Naomi, who's a relative of his, he is fine, obviously, with the poor of the land gleaning in the fields, which the law of God said that he ought to do, and so he follows that, but not everyone does. He's allowed God to change his business practices already before Naomi and Ruth ever enter into his life. And so in one sense, when he offers these measures of barley to Ruth and sends her on her way and then has committed to marrying her and all these ways that his life is completely changed now, It's simply a continuation of the ways that Boaz has already allowed God to shape him and his priorities and his life choices. In one sense, this this is not a brand new thing for him. And this is a disruption, as we see in the interaction with Mr. So-and-so. Boaz, the night before, has committed to Ruth that he will, in fact, provide for her, marry her, commit to her covenant with her and so provide for Naomi as well, at some cost to himself, by the way. And so, Mr. So-and-so arrives at the town gate, just as, by happenstance, wink, wink, the author gives us, by happenstance, and God's providence, this other redeemer, this man who is slightly closer in relationship to the deceased Elimelech, arrives at the town gate right as Boaz is sitting down And so Boaz, being a man of action, immediately gathers 10 of the elders of the town, the rulers, to be witnesses for this legal transaction, in a very crafty way, offers this other man the option of buying the property because he's first in line, but holds back pointing out that he needs to also marry Ruth in the exchange until it has the maximum rhetorical effect and the other man says, oh, well, in that case, no, I, I can't spend money to redeem Ruth and provide for Naomi if the land isn't even going to stay with me. No, 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 you, you do this. This other man is unwilling to be inconvenienced to provide in the way of the culture of that time. But Boaz is. I noticed this irony in the story of this master storyteller. This redeemer, this other person, this other guy who's closer in relationship, he's never named. In fact, in Hebrew, it's even a little bit more obvious. It's not so much friend come sit here. It's Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Such-and-such. He's intentionally unnamed. Whereas Boaz, 3,200 and some years later, we're still talking about him and Ruth and Naomi because these are the people who were willing to let God disrupt their lives. And let's just acknowledge the obvious, marriage on its own is a dramatic disruption to life. It's a good, gift of God, as is singleness, by the way. But marriage has a particular effect of utterly transforming a person when that covenant commitment is made. Anyone who's been married can tell you, if you do not let marriage change you, you will not stay married very long. And in some ways, marriage will change Boaz perhaps even more than uh, many other couples. After all, he as an upstanding, wealthy pillar of society in Bethlehem is now spending his money to redeem Ruth and Naomi and marrying a Moabite, again in our terms as we explored a few weeks back, functionally, socially it would feel to us, an ISIS refugee his life is completely and utterly changed. And one of the key things that we are invited to understand out of this story is that our redemption, like Boaz redeeming Ruth, our redemption is not a transaction. It's a covenant commitment. It's more like a marriage than almost anything else you can use to describe it. It's walking with the God who comes into our life to redeem us. And yes, our life completely changes because any deep relationship will completely change us. Any deep relationship requires us to completely change in order to accommodate the presence of this other in mutuality and love and commitment and solidarity. Friends, the amazing good news of the gospel of Jesus is this, that entering into a marriage commitment, an eternal covenant commitment with God who loves us, is not a one-way street. It's not all us accommodating Him. Look at the ways that God has accommodated us. It's not us sort of coming up to His level at all. It's God Himself coming down to ours to then bring us with him up to his. Jesus, who was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, didn't consider his godness something that he had to hold on to, that his glory and honor was something that he needed to hold on to he let it all go we're told in Paul's letter to the Philippians he emptied himself and took on human form becoming in every bit like us fully human even as he remained fully divine taking the form not just of you know some wealthy and important person that would be respected no 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 grew up in a backwater of Nazareth that was sort of a byword for Hicksville Worked as a tradesman for the first 30-some years of his life, preparing himself patiently for the day when his father, by the Spirit, called Jesus into the fullness of his ministry for those last three and a half or so years. No, no, no. In every way, God has accommodated himself to us. God has let his eternal being be disrupted. God the Son is eternally human with us. And if that's not disruption, I don't know what is. And it's for our sake that we would know him and be changed and redeemed into his likeness fun fact, there's only two times in the whole book of Ruth that God's direct action, the Lord's direct work, is narrated. Well, once at the beginning, where it's the Lord who is the one who brings famine to Bethlehem, which doesn't mean that Naomi and Elimelech taken off to Moab was necessarily the most faithful response to that, but God presumably had his own reasons probably none of which are narrated here and yet God redeems even Elimelech and Naomi's move to Moab gets redeemed in the overall story of God's people through the second time where God is narrated to directly intervene in Ruth giving birth to Obed, the son who is then the grandfather of King David, who's the ancestor of Jesus himself which implies that God was at work throughout the book of Ruth in all the disruptions, that just because we can't think of a reason why God would do something in our lives doesn't mean that God doesn't have some. God has his reasons and he will redeem through all the disruptions of life. And let's consider that the bigger, broader things around us that are disruptive right now. We're staying at home because of the coronavirus. That God may indeed, and in fact, we can be confident that he does have his reasons why he is allowing these things to take place. Even if we cannot see them yet and in his good time will redeem us and work these things together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. We can be confident in Him. One of the toughest (laughs) disruptions uh, earlier on in my ministry, while I was in the city of Pomona, California as a volunteer youth leader, was uh, the extremely large church just down the street, really about 300 yards away from where our campus was located, um, came to us because they saw the afterschool center that we were running and they wanted to learn from us. They wanted to run an afterschool center in this, let's be honest, high need neighborhood. And I have to tell you, my initial reaction to their request was fear. See, we were a very small congregation didn't have a lot of money. We had a building that we could use to bless others with, but we honestly didn't have a lot else going on, except it was really fun to be serving and loving these kids and these families in the neighborhood. And it was just great to know that we were beginning to have an impact. We're beginning to see kids excel academically and even better come to follow Jesus. And here's this church that... Um, yeah, we were less than 100 on a Sunday, and they're like 3,000 on a Sunday, and they want to run an after-school program. And what went through my mind immediately was, they're going to have all these resources. They've got video games in their basement. All of our kids are just going to want to go over to their place, and we're not going to have anything. No, I don't want to help you. I didn't say that out loud, but I certainly thought it. Over the years, it had become abundantly clear to to me and to others on the team that God blesses us when we're generous with others and honestly we want these kids to thrive, we want to be about their good. And so honestly, if they're better served by this other congregation, so be it. We're gonna show them everything that we've been doing so that they can love and serve kids and families as well as possible. So we, we showed them, here's what we've learned, here's the questions we still have, here's the materials we've collected, here's the materials we've created, here's how we train volunteers. And indeed, what came out of that time was not the dissolution of our ministry, but a really wonderful partnership. We, in fact, uh, trained volunteers together so that we could give even to their volunteers, here's what we've learned, here's the way you can do this well, and I'm sure we'll learn from each other over time. And we did. For a year and a half, we did three volunteer trainings together to make sure that we were passing on everything we possibly could. And what came out of that was actually All of our kids stayed with us. We're the ones that, you know, they knew. We're the ones who lived in their part of the neighborhood. And this really large congregation, and indeed another middle-sized Mennonite congregation just a bit further away, instead of the 50-some kids that we were serving, there were now well over 200 kids in the basic neighborhood who were now being cared for regularly in the name of Jesus our lives got disrupted. We had to make room for them to give away what we had learned. The blessing of God came on us as well. I know others who have let their lives be disrupted by God in very specific ways. Friends of ours from college who actually live up here in the Seattle area who have welcomed into their home a family that's seeking asylum here in the United States from Central America. And their two families have really become blended in this time where they've lived together, sharing a house together. That's letting God disrupt life for the sake of good and more life to come. I know of folks who've welcomed foster kids into their home and poured their lives out into children over time. I know people who have turned down promotions at work because where they were was the place that God had them. They felt a keen call to be loving and serving their current co-workers. And so they turned down the, the promotion and the opportunity that in the secular world would be a no-brainer folks who have chosen to move into cities and neighborhoods because of the call of Jesus on their life, that their heart was just wrecked for a particular place and a particular people. And so they moved to places that um, ordinarily in the common course of human events, they would not have moved into, or they stayed in a place that ordinarily they would have moved out of. Following Jesus who disrupted his life for us will mean letting our life get disrupted for others, but that's a good thing. So if some particular need of the world is just gutting you, that some way that society is working or laws or formulated just gets on you, let let God disrupt your heart to pull you into prayer or indeed direct action to Seek the good of our neighbors around us in that particular way, that particular injustice that grips you or that particular need that just melts you. Let God disrupt you. Friends, in this time when whether we want to or not, whether we choose to or not, every single one of our lives is just getting ruined. Our plans for 2020 are toast. But friends, Jesus is good and he's alive and he's with us and he's on our side and he's committed, covenantally committed to us. So let's let the Jesus who wrecked his life for us, let's let him disrupt our lives so that we can be more fully his to let him embrace us and change us and redeem us. Amen.